All right, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to James chapter 4. We have today and one more week in our James series. Uh, and so one more week for our toes to get stepped on, one more week for James to get all up in our grill and, and challenge the way that we live. Um, I've gotten a lot out of this study over the last few weeks. I hope and pray that you guys have as well. So today to start off, uh, we're going to go ahead and stand up and read James chapter 4 together. If you would stand to your feet, we're going to have everybody read this out loud. It'll be on the screens. Um, there's 17 verses today, I believe, so maybe not quite as many as some of our other chapters have been. So go ahead and put verse 1 up for us, uh, Haley, and we will read through this together. So, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? I think I'm the only one reading. Let's read it together. Verse 2, we'll read together. Verse 2, verse 2, verse 2. Okay. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get, on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you one more time for your word, God. We thank you for giving this to us, God. We thank you that you speak clearly, Lord, that you don't have muddy expectations. You don't have expectations that, that you keep hidden from us. God, but you make it very clear what you ask of us. And God, we thank you that it is your Holy Spirit living in us that empowers us to walk out your expectations. So God, we ask this morning that you would go to work inside of us. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our heart. God, open our, our, our heart to hear from you. God, help us to see what it is that maybe not 
does not line up with you and your word in our heart, God, in our life. Help us to see what we can do to be more like Jesus. God, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us today. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. You guys can grab a seat. James chapter 4. Uh, it is just a, a continuation of what we have been studying. If you remember, and James chapter 3 ended with uh, an encouragement or a challenge for us not to be envious, not to look at others uh, and desire what they have, not covet what they have, but to be content with what we have. And so just to give you uh, a little picture of what we're doing, if you're new with us or a refresher, if you maybe have forgotten, uh, we are spending the, the, next, the last few weeks and today and next week uh, reading one through one chapter each week in the book of James. And so we very early on, we picked a theme verse, James 1, 25 for this series. And from this verse, we collected three goals for the series. So James 1, 25 says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So we decided, hey, I want to be blessed you want to be blessed. The person next to you wants to be blessed. We all want to be blessed in what we do. And so if God's word tells us how to be blessed in what we do, we need to start aspiring to that. We need to start putting those principles into practice. And so we pulled from this verse three goals for our series, three goals that we are continuing to aspire for. Number one is we are looking intently into the book of James. It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. In other words, we, we are not just kind of sort of reading over it while we're distracted by this or paying attention to that. We're not going home this afternoon and turning on the ball game and open up James and we're going to read James during the commercials of the game. You know, like we're not doing it half-heartedly. We're intently looking into God's word. We're setting aside time to see what is he really trying to say to us. Our second goal is we are going to continue looking intently into the book of James. This is maybe one of the things that has been different for some of us. Maybe you've never tried this before, never been on a plan like this, uh, but James 1.25 says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. And so we've been reading the same chapter of James each day over the week. So this past week, we read James chapter four, Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Hopefully, you were a part of that. And if you weren't, um, you got one last chance. We got one more week for you to jump on board with us and see what can happen when you set aside one week to study one chapter, to see what happens when, when we look repeatedly into that same passage and, and that passage begins to become life to us. And we begin to see it through different perspectives and through different lenses. Um, I really encourage you to join us this week with that. And, and our last goal and our most important goal Number three is we're going to do what the book of James says. We discovered very early on that James is an action-oriented chapter. Last week we saw that faith without works is dead. Why are we at church this morning? Because we have a faith. Because we believe that God is here. Because we believe that God is honored and pleased when we gather. Because we believe that there's benefit for us in coming together. All those things are absolutely true. But James says that faith 
without works is dead. It's not just enough for us to go through the ritual of getting up on Sunday morning. It's not just enough for us to go through the ritual of, of studying God's word, of even looking intently into God's word. Ultimately, the reason why God has given it to us is so that we can put it into practice in our lives. So that it can be life to us. And so we are challenging ourselves. We are believing that as we read his word, we are going to see things that we can put into practice in our lives. And we're going to do what they say. James 1.25 says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. That's where the blessing is. When we look intently into the law, we continue to look intently into the law and we do what it says. And so we are believing God to allow us to, to walk that out throughout this series. So our challenge for this week, go ahead and give it to you up front. We're going to read James chapter 5 every day this week. We're going to finish strong. We're going to be finishers. One of the challenges that, that I have in life is I'm a much better starter than I am a finisher. Um, like my dad, I think, gave this to me. My dad was the guy who had 37 projects going on in the house at one time because he'd do two days on this project and get it close, and then he'd move on to the next project and the next project, and nothing ever quite got done. I don't know if there's other people that can identify with that. Um, I have that same problem. I get distracted easily, right? I get really excited about this, and, oh, let's start this. Oh, let's do that. Oh, let's try this. And, and a lot of times, if I'm not careful, things don't get finished. I'm not as good on the follow through. So my encouragement for myself and for anybody else in this room who has that same challenge, let's be finishers. Man, let's be finishers in the book of James. Let's walk this out one more week. Uh, even if you didn't start strong, let's finish strong. Even if you weren't strong through the middle, let's finish strong and read James chapter 5 every day this week. And if you like as well to, to read the proverb of the day being Proverbs 8 today because today is the 8th, 9 tomorrow, 10 the next day, etc. So that is our goal. That is what we are shooting for. So we're going to go back through James chapter 4 and, and pull out some principles and truths as we go. I apologize, my voice is super, super scratchy this morning. My wife is sick. It's uh, one of those days in the Southern household, one of those weeks in our household. So you might not want to get too close to me after service, but hopefully uh, nothing's going to go around. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, James is, is generalizing here, of course. We need to understand that. He's not saying that every fight or that every quarrel that you get in is because of some evil desire inside of you. What he is saying is the majority of the stuff that we get into, the majority of the conflicts in life ultimately stem from our own desires. He's not saying there's never a time where you're a victim. He's not saying, you know, that the child who's been abused or the person who's been assaulted, that they caused that because of some evil desire. What he is saying is that, and he's speaking again to, to the church context. He's speaking to Christians. So he's saying, why are you fighting with other Christians? Why is there always drama at church? What, isn't that so sad that churches are known as like the, this most dramatic places, these places where there's always some kind of thing going on and always some gossip going on and somebody's cutting somebody down. And it's shameful that that would be our reputation, man. We can do better than that. I believe God's called us to do better than that. And so he says, why is this happening? Well, ultimately, he says it's because of the desires that are battling within you. In other words, he's giving us some good news and some bad news. The good news is I am not just a victim. 
every time that I get into a conflict, every time something goes wrong, every time me and, and a family member have an issue, or me and, and Jimmy, which I don't think that's ever happened, but let's just say it did. It's hard to have issues with Jimmy. Jimmy's really easy to get along with. Uh, but, but every time that, that I have issues with somebody, that's not just me being a victim. Right, like we always try to, we always look at, oh, my boss is so bad, or oh, my wife is so hard to get along with, or my kid is so disrespectful, or whatever. Like we always see the reason why the conflict is happening because it's the other person's fault. I'm never the one at fault. It's always somebody else's fault. They made me mad. They frustrated me. They cut me off. They didn't use their turn signal. Whatever it is, right? Like that's the the conflict. And James says the good news is. You're not just some victim wandering through life waiting for the next person to take advantage of you and to hurt you. He says, you're in control of the majority of these quarrels. You're in control of the majority of these fights, and that is good news. I don't have to be frustrated all the time. I don't have to be angry all the time. Uh, One thing that that I've tried to eliminate from my vocabulary is I'm never going to say so-and-so made me mad. I'm going to tell my wife, you you made me so mad when you did this because I'm in control of my emotions. She's not in control of my emotions. I'm the one who allows myself to get angry. I'm the one. Now, obviously, if you're married, you know there's some things that your spouse can do to encourage you to get angry, right? We all do that. But but I'm not going to put her in control of my emotions. I'm not going to put my son in control of my emotions. I'm not going to put anything or anyone else in control. God's placed me in control. And so James is saying, you're in control of these fights. You're in control of these quarrels. Again, the rule, there are some exceptions. The bad news is this. You're in control of this right? It's the good news and the bad news. The good news is I'm not a victim. The bad news is I'm the problem. My biggest problem in life is me. Your biggest problem in life is you. All of our biggest problems are ourselves, and, and we want to put it on somebody else. We want to put it on the economy. We want to put it on the government. We want to put it on this politician or that person or whatever else. We always want to deflect all this stuff and say, well, if it wasn't for this situation, my life would be better. If it wasn't for this, I'd have more money. If it wasn't for this, I'd be happier. But ultimately, what's it come from? It's my evil desires are the ones that are causing me to be frustrated. They're what's causing me to be upset. There's what's causing me to feel a lack of joy because God's word says that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy and he lives in me. And so if he's in me, then I should be walking in joy. And if I'm not walking in joy, it's because I'm letting something else creep up and steal it. Verse two, he says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Remember, James is a little dramatic. Like he's a little, right? Like he goes straight to the biggest. I don't know how many people you've ever killed because you desired and did not have, hopefully not many. Um, But he goes right there. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. King James says, you have not because you ask not. And uh, I've learned that verse at, at a very young age and that principle that, man, the things that I don't have, it's because I'm not asking God. And I think it's a great principle. I think there's many things in life that God wants for me that I don't have yet because I just haven't asked him. He's just waiting. He's got them ready to go. He's got more joy for me. He's got more peace for me. He's got more happiness for me. He's got more, more anointing for me. He's got more gifting for me. He's got more ability to reach people for me. He's got all those things. He's just waiting for me to come and say, God, I need this. God, I need more of your peace. I need more of your joy. I need more of your ability to go out there and make a difference. He's got all these things, and and he's waiting for me to ask, and the same for you. Um, And that's a great thing. It's a great promise. I grew up in churches that that were kind of on the super spiritual side of things, and, and they made this verse out to be like, 
this was the only verse in the Bible. Right? Like, if I just ask, I'm going to have. If I just name it and I just claim it, I'm going to have whatever it is. And, and I'm very grateful for my upbringing. I'm very grateful for, for what God was able to do in the churches that I grew up in. But I think we took this one too far. Uh, because in context, it doesn't stop there. You got to go on and read verse 3. It's not just you have not because you don't ask. He goes on to say, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, God's not just waiting for me to ask. He's waiting for me to ask for the right reasons. God's not just looking for me to come to him and say, God, I need a better car, or God, I need a bigger house, or God, I need this student loan paid for, or whatever it is. He wants me to come to him and say, God, I need a bigger house because I really want to host a small group. Not just, you know, I'm not like I'm tricking God into thinking he's going to give me a bigger house and and then I'm going to do what I want with it. Like he really wants my motive to be in the right place. He wants it to be selfless. He wants me to bless somebody. God, I'd love to have a a nicer car that's more reliable so that I can give, that I can be transportation for somebody to church. That I can pick somebody up. Like I'm not saying just church related stuff, whatever it is. But he's looking for us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to have great things. He wants to, to give us, but he wants our heart to be in the right place. He doesn't just want me to want more so that I can have pleasure. So that I can heap it up upon myself. And so he actually says, and this goes against everything that I was taught growing up. Actually says like you can pray and God's not going to answer your prayer. Right? Like he says, I'm not just going to be the cosmic genie and give you whatever you want. I'm looking for something in you before I'm going to step up and honor your prayer. So sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. But sometimes we don't have because we do ask, but our heart's in the wrong place. And God is looking for that place for where our faith and our heart would line up, where we would believe him that he can give, that he's a good God who gives good gifts, and we can believe him to receive that, but we're not just looking for that because we want more. Trying to get the focus off of ourselves. James, earlier on in his book, in chapter 1, you may remember, he gave us another reason why we might ask and not receive. In verse 6, he says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So he's given us now two reasons why you can ask God for something and not receive it. He says the first reason in James 1 is we can ask God, but if we don't believe it's going to happen, if we don't have any faith that he's going to do this, then he's not going to honor the request. Now he's given us a second reason in chapter 4. You may even believe it, and you may actually trust him for it. But if you're asking him simply for yourself, he's not going to do that. So, so what is James trying to teach us about our prayer life? Number one, he's trying to teach us we need to believe God for big things. But number two, he's trying to teach us we need to believe God for big things bigger than ourselves. That life is not just about me. Life is not just about my wants, my desires. We tell people this all the time. If you're having issues with your spouse when we do marital counseling, like you need to pray for your spouse, but don't just pray that God is, is going to make your spouse do what you want. Like that's not the prayer. Like that's the selfish prayer. Like God, make my wife want to make, I don't know, whatever frustration I might have with her at the time. Um, like there's all those prayers that we can pray, right? Like make my wife a better cook. I don't know, like whatever prayer request you might have, like thing that you want to see from God. And if, if that's the focus, if it, all the focus is on what you can do for me, God says, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not out to just make your life better. I'm out to make the world better. And I want you to be an agent of that. 
I want you to be a conduit of that. I want you to be a blessing to others. I want to bless you. According to Genesis chapter 12, he says, it made the promise to Abraham that we are now heirs to. He said, you're going to be blessed to be a blessing. So I'm not looking just for stuff for myself. God isn't looking just for another opportunity to bless his kids. He's looking for this child in his family who is faithful enough that he can bless them and he knows that they're going to use it for the betterment of others. So my question real quick is, is what are you asking God for with raw motives today? What, what is it that, that you've come before him and you've set before him and you're asking God, I want this. God, I need this. And your heart's in the wrong place. So allow him to, to begin to, to shape your heart. Here's what I, don't, I think. I don't think that those were necessarily are bad prayers. We just need to get our heart right. We just need to get our motive right. The thing that you're asking for may not even be a bad thing. If you're asking him to, to change your spouse, man, we all need to change. We all need to be more like God. It's good to pray that God can change my spouse's heart, but I need to ask him, God, help, help Melody be more like Jesus. God, help me to be more like Jesus so that I can be better to my wife, so that I can lead her better. And if I'm doing that, man, I definitely think God's going to answer those prayers. Verse 4, he goes on and he, he says, you adulterous people in your face, uh, right? Like, what is he saying? He, he's not speaking of, <coughs> of physical adultery, although there may have been some of that. He's speaking of spiritual adultery. And how do we know that? Well, we know because when we go on to read the verse, it's exactly what he's going to describe. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And we need to understand what he's saying here. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus so loved sinners that the Bible actually says he was a friend of sinners. So when he's saying you're not supposed to be a friend of the world, he's not saying we don't care about the lost. He's not saying that, that we shut ourselves in. The Bible says we're supposed to be in, but not of the world. What, what is he saying? He's saying, what has your heart? Because if your heart is God's, it can't also be the world's. In other words, I can't, I can't love God, I can't be his child and also want worldly recognition. I can't love him and prioritize him and serve him and also want the world to love me. There's going to be some times where, where his word and our culture contradict each other. And I can't decide that, hey, I want people to love me, man. I, I want to be there for sinners. And so I'm going to tell people what they want to hear and water down God's word. He's saying there's going to be points in time where you got to choose who are you going to serve? Where's your heart at? And if you want friendship with the world, you can have it, but you can't have me too. So again, what's, what's James getting to? He's getting to my heart. Where is my heart at? Is my heart with him completely or is my heart with I want people to like me and to think that I'm kind of spiritual sometimes and I do some cool Christian stuff. And I think as Christians, all of us have to check our heart time and time again. What is my true motivation here? What am I really getting at? Verse 5, it says, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has called, caused to dwell in us? The concept of God as a jealous God is a hard one sometimes for me to wrap my brain around. I don't know if you've ever had difficulty with that. It's all through the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well that God is a jealous God. And I think to, to go back to the beginning where we first see this can maybe help us to get a picture of it. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel came in 
to Israel. There were all kinds of other religions there. There were all kinds of other beliefs. They worshiped other gods. They sacrificed their children to other gods. Like there was some really wicked stuff going in in, in, the, in the promised land when the Israelites came in. And so God said very clearly, you can, number one, right? Number one on his top 10, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm not gonna be the, the God of, of this. I'm not gonna be the God of the good times and you're gonna have a fertility God for when things are going bad and you're gonna have a sex God for when whatever. Like I'm gonna be God or I'm not. You can have no other gods before me, and, and it's uncomfortable sometimes for us to think of God being jealous, right? Because normally jealousy is like insecure, and God's not insecure. What, what does it mean when it says that God is jealous? Well, you got to understand two things. Everything God does, he does with two purposes in mind. Everything God does in my life, he does with two purposes. Number one, God does everything for my good. He wants to make me better. And number two, God does everything for his glory. And so God has these simultaneous goals running at all times. And so when we look through that lens, we can see what God's up to. So God wants everything for my good. So if my heart is with somebody else, why is that a problem for God? Because he knows that anything that I give my heart to is going to disappoint me. Anything else that I give my heart to is going to let me down. Anything else that I give my heart to is going to fail me. Only he can ever satisfy. Only he can ever truly fulfill what I desire. And so if I give my heart to him and something else, he's jealous because he wants all of me because he knows that other thing is going to come up empty. That other thing is going to come up wanting. And so he wants my good in wanting me to be totally his. Secondly, he wants his glory. The more that I give myself to him, the more glory that I bring him. And the more glory that God gets, the more other people see him. And the more other people want him. And the more other people give their lives to him. And the more good that he can do in their lives. And so these are God's two simultaneous goals that he's constantly striving for. He wants your good. He wants everything to work together for your good. He wants, and obviously your good doesn't necessarily always mean your comfort. Or, or your happiness, your good ultimately is your holiness. It's being more like him. That's ultimately what God wants. But he wants your good, and he wants his glory. So hopefully maybe that can make a little more sense next time you see that. It goes on to verse 6. He says, but he gives us more grace. More grace. God's already given me so much grace. He says, I'm going to give you more grace. That's pretty awesome. He says he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor. To the humble. I can't think of a worse situation in life than for God to oppose me. I can't think of something more hopeless, something more destructive. I can't think of a place that is ultimately going to lead to ruin and destruction more quickly than to be on one side and God on the other side, right? Like, I want to be on his side. I want God to be for me. I want God to favor me. And so God's word says, God opposes the proud. What does that say to me very loudly? I need to deal with pride. I need to get rid of it because I want God for me. And so if God says, I can't honor you, I can't help you, I can't be for you if you're trying to bring glory and attention and favor to yourself. God resists that. He opposes that. That's a scary place to be, in my opinion. But he also says, I give grace or I give favor to the humble. The, the more common translation of this is I give grace to the humble. Um, the word here in Greek is actually uh, charis, uh, which is the same word which is translated as grace earlier in this very verse. He gives us more grace. Uh, so I don't know why the NIV chose to translate it as favor 
on the second half of the verse. Uh, but I know that grace and favor run, run pretty side, side by side. They're pretty similar. Uh, if you read the proverb of the day this week, you probably found the proverb that this is paraphrased from. It's paraphrased from Proverbs 3, 34, which was our reading, I believe, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, so you may want to go back and check that. But he says, I resist the proud. I oppose the proud. I'm against the proud. But I give grace to the humble. I want God's grace in my life. I want his favor in my life. And humility is the greatest way for us to receive that. Verse 7, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. You know that you have authority over the enemy? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Like, like ultimately when it comes to power, God's got the most power, right? Satan's got some power. And on my own, I have none. On my own, he, Satan has more power than I do. Satan's destroyed a lot of lives, right? Like he's destroyed a lot of humans. But because of Jesus, I actually have authority over him. Because I'm covered in Jesus' blood, because I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And so he says, if you will resist the enemy, if you will resist Satan, if you'll stand against him, if you'll take authority over him, he has to flee. He has no choice because he can't stand against Jesus. Jesus already beat him. Jesus already defeated him. And so if I will stand up in my authority, whether that's authority over sickness, whether that's authority over fear, whether that's authority over an attack on my family, whatever it is, the enemy has to flee. And I've been taught that my whole life, and I love that verse, and I think it's awesome. But the first part of the verse we overlook sometimes, don't we? It's like, man, I, the enemy has to flee. If I, if I resist the devil, he's got to go. I've got authority over Satan. Praise God. But where's the authority come from? Comes to the first half of the verse. Submit yourselves then to God. You see, when I step out of submitting myself to God, when I step out of obedience to him, I have no authority over the enemy. My authority comes from my protection, which is under the umbrella of submission to God. So when I'm submitted to him, when I'm obeying him, when I'm pursuing him, when I'm doing the things that I know he's called me to do, I've got full and total authority over the enemy in my life. But when I'm not submitted to God, that authority begins to lessen. It begins to lose its power and its strength. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you've got to do it in submission to God. I thought this quote was really cool. It was one of the commentaries that I read this week. The Reformation Study Bible said this. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. It says, Satan is not equal in power or authority to God. Though Satan is powerful, he is not invincible. He flees from saints wearing the armor of God who resist him. So if we will put on the armor of God, if we will step up into the battle, submitted to him, we're going to be able to drive the enemy away. Verse eight, we've mentioned this already in our service today. I love it so much. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. You ever known somebody, maybe you have this in your own life where you, that person just felt like, I just can't find God. He's just far, he's distant. I just can't feel like I can get from where I am to where he is. Well, the promise of God's word is, if I come near to him, if I begin moving towards him, he's going to move towards me. And now we can get this uh, a little mixed up if all we see is this verse and we're like, well, so God's waiting for me to make the first move. Well, God's not waiting for me to make the first move. God already made the first move when he sent Jesus. Jesus came and died for my sin. That was the first move. Now that God's made the first move, now he said, the ball's in my court. And if you'll come towards me, I'm gonna come towards you with all my power, with all my grace, with all my love, with all my forgiveness, with all my mercy, with all that I am, I'm gonna come. But you've gotta come to me 
first because I've already established my heart for you, my desire for you. I love this verse, but in context, it becomes very clear specifically what James is referring to. He's not just saying come near to God, but there's a way for us to come near to God. We've submitted ourselves, we've humbled ourselves, and now we come in repentance. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Remember, he's writing specifically to Jewish Christians. So Jewish Christians, this was a, they, they had a whole process of, of weeping when, when they were repenting. It was part of their, their demonstration of God that would put on, um, they would heap ashes on their head and put on sackcloth. And that was their declaration of, of mourning, that something was wrong. And this is a, a way to say, look, God, I've blown it. I've messed up. I've missed it. We don't have to do all that. You don't have to go home and get sackcloth. You don't have to get in your fireplace and throw ashes on your head to tell God that I'm really sorry. That's not what, he's, what, what we need to do. But the, the principle is the same because the principle is repentance. How does God come near to us? God draws near to the people who repent. Why? Because God resists the proud. So if I don't think I have anything to repent for, I've got it together, God can't come near me. But when I lower myself, when I humble myself, when I submit to him and say, you know what, God, I blew it. God, I need you. God, I'm not everything I need to be. God, I've got some junk in my life. Can you help me with that? This morning in our, in our production meeting, Jonathan, we went around and we all prayed, and, and Jonathan prayed for our junk and our gunk. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, so that, that just popped in my head when I said junk. So I've got junk and I've got gunk, God, and I need you to get rid of it. I need you to pull it out. I need you to deal with it. When I humble myself that way, that's when he comes near. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. See, if we look at just certain phrases in there, we might get the idea that God wants us to be depressed. Change your, your joy to mourning. Well, God doesn't want me to be joyful. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is get rid of your joy that's in a bunch of worldly junk. Get rid of your joy that's found in all the wrong places. Come to me, humble yourself, repent, and when you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. God doesn't want you down. God wants you up, but he wants you up in a way that's sustainable. See, when I'm up on the things of life, guess what? When life comes and takes those things away, I'm down. But when I'm up on Jesus and his love for me and his sacrifice for me, when I'm up in the power of the Holy Spirit, when I'm up because of what God is up to, nothing that rings on that telephone can take that joy away. No bad news that comes across the television can take that joy away. So he says, humble yourself, lower yourself before me, and I'll lift you up. And when I lift you up, it's a whole lot better than when you're up on your own. Verse 11, it says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. The Greek word for slander or for slanderer uh, is actually the same word that's used for devil in Greek. So the, the implication is that the devil is the great slanderer. That all Satan does is he spends time talking crap about people, right? Like that's, that's, that's who he is. He is constantly pointing out so-and-so's flaws. He's constantly telling you, number one, he's constantly pointing out your flaws to you. He's constantly slandering you to yourself. He's constantly telling you why you're not good enough to be used by God, why, you, why you're not really a Christian, why you're not really saved, why you don't really need to do that. He's constantly slandering us to ourselves, but he's also the, the great accuser. He slanders us before God. He tries to tell God all the reasons why, why we're messed up. 
So that's who he is. And so James, in verse 11, he says, brothers and sisters, in the church context, he's using a word specifically used for Christians in relationship to one another. He says, do not slander one another. What's he saying? He's saying, quit doing Satan's job for him. How terrible is it when Christians tear down other Christians? How awful is it when we go behind each other's back and we run our mouth and we put somebody down? Oh, did you see what so-and-so did? Blah, blah, blah. Did you hear about this and that? And what are we doing? We are becoming Satan's device. We're being used for him. He's the slanderer. That's his job. It's not mine. And so when I start talking down about God's people, I'm being used by the enemy. James says, this is not okay. We cannot do this. He says, we've got to stop. He says, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, and the law being the word of God in this case, he says, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We got to love each other better. One of the things I love about this church is, is I've never been in a, in a congregation. I've never been around a group of people who are better at not running each other down than this church. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen here, right? Like I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that every time somebody at City Church speaks about somebody else at City Church that it's encouraging and it's positive and it's good. We've got some of this in our church. We got to get rid of it. Like we got we to gotta deal with it. We're really, really, really good in this. If, you, if we compare ourselves to other churches, man, and I, I know there's a ton of places where people have gone and you've been totally destroyed because somebody talked about you. And I'm very grateful that we don't see a lot of that here. But I don't want to just sit, sit and compare ourselves to another church and say, hey, we're better than them. I want to compare ourselves to the word of God. And the word of God says this isn't okay. So if you've got any of that in you towards somebody else here or, or another Christian somewhere else, can I just challenge you this morning that that God says it's not okay. And we need to quit doing Satan's job for him. Quit slandering each other. Quit cutting each other down. Quit putting each other down. We, the Bible says in Proverbs that the, there's life and death in the power of the tongue. That I actually have the ability to, to make life or to destroy life. Now, I don't think that's meant literal. In other words, I can't speak and boom, there's a baby, right? Like, obviously, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I can speak life into you or I can speak death into you. That in my words and the way that I speak to my wife, the way that I speak to my child, the way that I speak to my friends, the way that I speak to each, to each other, I have the ability to, to create life or to destroy it. And we looked at the poison in the tongue uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter two, um, and, or excuse me, last week, we looked at the poison in the tongue in chapter three, and we discovered that, that we all have these poisons. And so I don't wanna go too deeply into that because hopefully you were here last week, if not, check out the podcast, but I just wanna encourage you, let's not run each other down. Let, let's just not do that. Let's not be those people. One last paragraph here, guys, we're almost there. Verse 13 says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. This is one of those really kind of confusing passages of scripture. Um, he is not telling you not to make plans. He's not telling you to, to, okay, mom, 
maybe we'll be home for Christmas, maybe we won't. If it's the Lord's will, maybe we'll be there. Uh, what, what is James speaking to? He's speaking again to the motives of our heart. Uh, notice what he says in here about our boasting. He says that if you say, I'm going to carry on business and make money in verse 13. So he's talking about people who, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to have success. I'm going to create this. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. He says, man, that boasting is evil. It's wrong. It's arrogant. And so in humility, what, are, what is he ultimately saying? He's saying ultimately recognize you're not in control, right? You're in control of a lot. You're in control of some things and be in control, control the things you can control. But ultimately, God may have other plans. I know God's changed our plans many times. If we were doing, if we, if we were in control, we would have been in Seattle and running a church out there a long time ago because that's what we thought. That was our plan. But God had a different plan and God's plan is better. And I'm grateful that we, that we were humble enough to submit that plan to God. And when God said, no, I've got something different for you that we were able to obey. Uh, so we need to walk in humility with our plans. He's not saying don't make plans. Uh, the, there's many scriptures that talk about the, the blessing of being prepared, the blessing of making plans. Make plans, but keep those plans flexible. Keep those plans open that God may have something different. And then it wraps up with verse 17. We'll close right here in just a second, guys. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So I just want to wrap up with a question. We're going to pray in just a second. What is the thing that you know that God has called you to do, the thing that God has for you, the good that God would have for you to do that you're not doing? Whatever that is, the Bible says is sin. That's what God's word says. So if, if, God, if you know that God wants you to forgive that person, but you're holding on to unforgiveness, it's sin. If you know that God wants you to witness to that person. But you're not gonna tell them about Jesus because you're afraid of what they might think. The Bible says it's sin. If you know that God's telling you to read James chapter five seven times this week, and you say, I don't have time for that, or I'm too busy, or I got other things going on, and you don't do it, the Bible says it's sin. It's not me telling you this. It's what the word of God says. If you know the good that you ought to do, if God's pricked your heart and said, this is the thing that I have for you in this time, in this season. Now, obviously, it's in black and white in the word. You don't have to, to pray about it. Like, if it's been black and white in God's word, then you know it's good. You got to do it. But even the things that God's spirit speaks to us. If God's spoken it to you and you don't obey, it's disobedience and disobedience is sin. And I know that's maybe not the most like encouraging verse to wrap up our message today. I'm a sinner. Praise God. I'm a disobeyer. Um, I want to encourage us to check our heart and to begin to obey the things that God leads us to do. God may ask us to do some things that are scary. He does. Why? Because God's going to ask you to do something that's greater than yourself. God's going to ask you to do something that you can't do in your own power. God's going to ask you to give beyond your ability to give. God's going to ask you to, to, to do something that is so far beyond your skill, and you say, there's no way I can do this. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the, the old statement that, oh, God won't put anything more on you than you can handle. It's a lie. God will put something on you that you cannot handle. Why? Because he can handle it. And he wants you to rely on him. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to believe him that he's going to show up in your situation. 
And so if there's something that God's told you to do and you haven't done, repent because it's sin. And now begin to go out and figure out how can I make that thing happen? God, I'm sorry. God, I'm humbling myself for the things you've asked me to do. And I've got some things up yours. Man, I don't like that verse. That means there's some stuff I got to fix. So stuff that I got to do. But man, I want to be obedient to God. I want to be fully submitted to him. And when I'm submitted to him, then I can resist the devil and the devil has to flee. And that's pretty awesome. Amen. Let's pray.